Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and I'm joined as ever by pod regulars Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, is Stevie Gerrard really on the verge of a move to Scottish football? We assess the thought process of the Liverpool legend as he looks to take his first steps in management. Our very own Duncan Castles broke the internet this week with his exclusive that Zleko Bubac has left Liverpool. We take you inside the story that everyone is talking about. And Rui to Arsenal. Could Jose Mourinho's longtime assistant end up facing down his mentor as Arsene Wenger's replacement? Okay guys, we're going to start where else but with Liverpool giant, Liverpool legend Steven Gerrard who has been linked strongly with a move to Glasgow Rangers. Ian, what's your take on whether or not Stevie G will actually take this position and if he should actually take this position? I think we're at crossroads moment, Johnny, with regards to Stephen Jarrett's intentions with um, and Rangers and the job. If, as some people described this, that this was a no-brainer. I think it was Alan Shearer who said that that Jarrett should simply commit himself to the to that uh, position and um, and do the best that he can. Then he would already have signed a contract. But um, having spoken to several people who are close to Stephen Gerrard in the last few days. Um, and gauged their opinion, gauged what Stephen's thinking, etc. Et and I have to say, I've not spoken to Stevie directly on this. Um, I think he's weighing up his options. I think at the moment there's a very interesting PR exercise going on, if you want to call it that. I think Rangers have got nothing to lose from being linked with Stevie G, uh, joining them as a next manager, because it shows that a board who have been subordinate and negligent in uh, their appointments thus far um, are looking at someone, a, a serious candidate, albeit someone who has no um, experience in senior football management as yet. But uh, it certainly shows them to be in a positive light. It's created very much positive headlines for them uh, at a time when the team on the pitch has been in turmoil to um, very poor losses uh, to old firm rival Celtic in the last three weeks have not helped, but it's helped deflect away from that um, and away from Graham Murty's uh, performance as manager as well since uh, Pedro Cachina has been sacked. So I think very, it's still very much up in the air. I think a lot of people are reporting it as nearly done. I don't believe that that's quite... Uh, the case as yet. I think Stephen Gerrard is someone who will take a little bit more time to decide with regards to what his next move is 
uh, in terms of his coaching career and therefore uh, I think might be kept waiting a little bit longer. I think that Murty stepping down as Rangers manager um, does not necessarily mean there's an imminent appointment of Jared or anyone else. Uh, I think there's still a lot of uh, sorting out to be done. And, and it has been chaotic Rangers, let's face it, uh, the, this last season. I don't think that Dave King or anyone at Rangers has covered themselves in glory with regards to the way that they have behaved nor acted. But I do believe Stephen Jarrett would be a fantastic appointment uh, for Rangers and a fantastic appointment for SPFL uh, because of his reputation, his uh, obvious prestige value in terms of signing players, his contacts and everything else. However, as I said, I, I do not believe that it's as close as some people are, are either portraying it to be or believe it to be. And therefore, this could still come back to kind of backfire in Rangers' face um, on the basis that Jared may well decide that this is a risk that he doesn't want to take. Duncan, I believe you have some insight into the thought process that's going on with Stephen Gerrard at the moment. Yeah, I'll just say first that I can understand um, Rangers' reasoning here because they obviously they want a man who can stop Brendan Rodgers winning the title um, they can't get Josie Mourinho, so they're going to the next best uh, specialist in that area. <laughs> but, um... That's officially the 573rd time I've heard that joke this week, but fire away, Duncan. Yeah. Is it? Welcome, okay. welcome to the podcast, Rangers fans. Uh, Liverpool fans, I should say. Duncan's uh, amid the abuse from Liverpool fans this week. He's obviously missed that joke being used about 500 times, but it's still funny. <laughs> um the, the thought process is interesting from, from uh, Gerard's perspective. It's what I, I, myself, looking at it from the outside, you think the man would have to be crazy taking on a job like that, especially as his first job in management. Um, the club uh, is a basket case club. Their budget's miles behind Celtics. Um, they've gone through managers at a rate of knots. I think, what are they on their third set of managers this season? Um, and then setting up preparing to get the fourth in. So if you're a man of Stephen Gerrard's stature who knows you will have the opportunity to manage um, in certainly in the Premier League at some point in your career and you know that Liverpool um, see you as a potential manager in the future and you see that's the job you want to do, why, why risk going to Glasgow Rangers and um, ending up miles behind Celtic, um, ending up in turmoil and chaos, dealing with the press, dealing with uh, that old firm situation and, uh, and damaging your reputation. You know, in some ways, it kind of screams um, John Barnes, another Liverpool uh, player, not of quite the same status as Steven Gerrard, who went to Scottish football and effectively ended his managerial career um, in one, uh, well, less than one season uh, managing in the old firm. But there's talking to some people close to Stephen, the interesting um, guidance I was getting is that it's precisely because he wants to manage Liverpool in the future that Rangers and the old firm is an attractive environment for him because he sees parallels between Liverpool and Glasgow as cities with a, an intensity of a football culture, an intensity of a football rivalry. Uh, um, but that probably doesn't exist anywhere else in the UK. Um, and if you want to be Liverpool manager, is the prep 
the preparation he is thinking is better to go into an environment which will be similar to the one he wants to be in in the future, as opposed to taking, for example, a championship job. You know, he'd easily get a championship job if he wanted one, or a lower mid-tier um, Premier League job. Again, that offer will be made to him at a certain point, as we've seen, you know, with Ryan Giggs, the offers he's had from Premier League clubs. Um, he doesn't. There's only so much he can learn being in the academy at Liverpool. Um, you have the potential of uh, this discussion at the moment that he could be a replacement for Zelko Buvac as as Klopp's assistant. But again, how much can you learn as being an assistant um, to a, a strong manager as opposed to taking the job on for itself? Um, so that's that's why Rangers are in with a shout here. And um, that's why he's, he's taking this opportunity seriously. Um, and I, I, I think I'm in sympathy with Ian in the, in the sense that a decision, guidance I have is a decision hasn't been made, but he is leaning towards um, the opportunity that's available to him there. I suppose that the ultimately what it's about is whether or not um, the Rangers board provides Gerard with the kind of funds that will allow him to compete uh, at a decent level within Scottish football. I wonder if actually... Um, what his job would be would be to come in and, and ensure that Rangers are actually the second force in Scottish football, getting them to within a position where they would be challenging Celtic and challenging for the odd cup rather than coming in and you know overtaking Celtic, who have a vast difference in budget, as you've already touched on. Um, for me, you look at it and you, you wonder what, what success would look like. And I think it's less of a gamble for, from, for Stevie Gerrard as people... I've been suggesting because I disagree, six... Johnny. I disagree yeah. with that. I, 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 you know, I, I, my, my background, my, my heritage, obviously, as as most people know, um, I grew up in Scotland and I, I worked in Scotland um, as a journalist for many years before uh, moving to England, and there is, there is no uh, shortfall with regards to when you are an old firm manager. You have to be first. Or your last, and at this moment in time, uh, many Rangers managers, including uh, the legend that is Alan McCoist, uh, and then Kashina, uh, and then obviously Graham Marty, have found out that coming second to Celtic is not good enough. Now, Duncan mentioned uh, that the budget that's available to Brendan Rodgers as Celtic manager, and the one that'll be available to the next Rangers manager, are very, very different. And you'll always be judged on where you come next to Celtic. It's not like being the manager of Everton or Arsenal or even Chelsea. Um, you have to be the best. Now, if Gerard doesn't know that, and I suspect he's been told by the people who are advising him that he does know that, then he has to make a decision based on whether or not he thinks that he can build a team or that he has the finances, which I very much doubt, to uh, build a team who can challenge Celtic for the SPFL title. Yeah, I, 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 I think there's been environmental change that, 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 that you're, you're missing, which is that Rangers haven't actually um, achieved second place since they've been back in the Premier League. They came third last no, no, no. season and it looks Johnny, like they're going to be fourth that. this season. But Johnny, I understand that. My point is that with Steven Gerrard as manager, 
that is what is expected. He's a winner. He's someone who is a very high-profile name in world football. And so, um, yes, if you're Graham Murty, then coming second in your what you call the environmental change is enough. But I think in appointing Stephen Gerrard, it's not enough. It has to be better than that. And that's, I think that's unfair on Gerrard because he's never managed at senior level. He's managed Liverpool under-18s. Um, he's never been a senior coach. He's just about to complete his UEFA Pro licence. Um, and trying to, but thing is, but the, the difference between reality and perception is huge in this instance, because the reality is, Gerard has not managed at this level before, hasn't experienced first team football, has never experienced Scottish football. But the perception is that someone that like Stephen Gerrard comes in is expected to compete immediately with Celtic and Brendan Rodgers, who are much better financed years ahead in terms of their foundational um, build, their, their playing squad at this moment in time, and also their ability to spend. So Jared will be judged on the fact of his reputation as a player, stroke then coming into being a coach. And that's where things differentiate. And that's where things will break down. And I've seen it with other people. And I think John Barnes is a, is a credible um, analogy that Duncan has brought up with regards to how things did not work out for him. And the bottom line is, you have to be not just first in Glasgow, first in Scotland. And if Gerard chooses to take the job, he has to know that that's what's expected of him. And regardless of you know the circumstances and the environment that you've described around it, he will still be expected to produce. And I don't think he has or will have the resources or the um, uh, the background um, capabilities, nor the uh, structural basis, which will allow him to compete with Celtic, who are miles ahead in all those things, and have just won their seventh consecutive title. I, I, mean, I, I agree. I agree entirely with Ian in this. Just taking it from a, a rational football analysis perspective, you're asking a guy in his first managerial job to take on a club who have got a far better squad and are going to have a much bigger budget to build on top of that squad and also have a history of success. And that, that's a hard ask for anyone. Um, so that, it's a hard ask and it's a big risk. And there's an additional factor here because, you know, the things that Ian is, is talking about, the, the pressure and the, the, the sense of expectation for any Rangers manager you're going to double that because it's Stephen Gerrard. So it's not just going to be the Scottish media um, watching at what happens. The English media are going to be paying attention to how he does because he's, he's still a huge name in the English game. So it'll be even more intense than it would be for, you know, a Pedro Caixina, for example, and, and his experience coming in. So it, it's, it's tough. But, I mean, the one thing, I, I don't know Stephen Gerrard um, as a person at all. Um, but talking to people close to him, what was interesting to me and asking them, do you, do you think you'll make a good manager? Because on the surface, it doesn't strike you as being the kind of guy who would be a, 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 a strong managerial figure because he's, he's always been quite reserved, come across as quite reserved as, as a footballer. They're clear that he, his personality and uh, his way of developing relationships with individuals and 
they think will work very well with players. And also, he, he's definitely going to have an advantage in terms of being able to attract players to the club. So he, he you know, as Stephen Gerrard, he will be able to make a phone call to certain individuals in football and convince them to come to Rangers when they wouldn't go there for Graham Murphy, for example. So, so he's got that on his side. But um, I, think, I think Graham Souness wrote a good column for the Sunday Times at the weekend, essentially pointing out just what a big risk it would be. And one, one of the things that Sunes was advising was if, you, if you're going to take that job, make sure you get a very good and experienced assistant who knows the Scottish game and beside you in the way that Sunes did by taking Walter Smith um, from Jim McLean's Dundee United when he, um, when he took over at Rangers, which was probably the smartest move of, of all the things he did as Rangers manager coming up in a similar, similar situation that's being proposed for, um, for Gerrard. Gary McAllister has been mentioned, Johnny, in that role, and he's someone who's not worked in Scottish football, who I think has knowledge of Scottish football, but I don't think you know has anyone near the the ground knowledge of Scottish football. It's just another person who is a big name, who Stevie respects, um, who people in Scotland respect because of his career with Scotland, etc. Um, and I would, you know, again, be very sceptical about. There being a, a Gerard McAllister access at Rangers, and that being something which was successful. In terms of the players that have been phenomenal superstars, that have turned into management. For every Zidane, there's a Tony Adams. How difficult is it to make that move, and how do you quantify elite level experience against a manager that started from the bottom and then worked their way up? Um, in terms of when you're selecting a manager, Duncan. Johnny, hugely difficult. If you look historically at the managers who have achieved success, which is equal to what they achieved as players, then you find a very small number. I think um, Johan Cruyff, obviously, um, uh, as well as Fabio Capello, Capello, uh, Carlo Ancelotti, Kenny Dalglish is someone who you know, we don't give enough credit to in terms of the fact that he managed to replicate his achievements as a player in terms of winning championships uh, to those that he did, albeit a little bit less um, uh, successful with Blackburn and Liverpool. Um, he didn't actually win a, a European Cup, but, but obviously did manage to win the league. So... Um, there's nothing to say uh, historically. In fact, there's a lot to say um, negatively that uh, your success as an elite footballer uh, does not guarantee you success as an elite coach. Um, it's a shame that that's the case, but it's not. I don't think it's surprising because um, I always remember uh, an anecdote um, about uh, when England were preparing for the World Cup in 1998 and Glenn Hoddle was a manager uh, and um, David Beckham was practicing free kicks at their training base uh, and Hoddle interrupted him and said, that's not how you do it, this is. And Beckham apparently was completely shocked and crestfallen at the fact that he'd been interrupted by the manager and in fact effectively upstaged by the manager to say, uh, you're not as good as I am. And I think, unfortunately, that's been part of the um, downfall of uh, 
let's say, elite players taking over as coaches because they always think that they're better than the players that they've got in their charge. And indeed, myself, I, I um, went to a training session with uh, Wickham Wanderers when, when Tony Adams took over initially in his first job as, as a coach. And uh, we were simply watching a, a practice match and one of the centre defenders gave the ball away and a striker scored a goal. And he turned to me and said, Ian, that's what I'm up against. How can I teach that guy to be a better defender when that's how he plays? And my response was, well, as a coach, then that's your job, Tony. That's what you have to do. And he, and he just shook his head and said, but, but how? How am I supposed to do this? If he's not got it, he's not got it. Now, again, this is the problem with elite players who go into coaching. And listen, I think Stephen Judd has the humility and the um, ambition and drive to want to be an elite coach as well in the way that some players think they can just turn up and be the, be, you know, be the bee's knees, basically, and, and therefore work their magic because they were such good players. I don't think Steve Yard is one of those people, but I, I do still feel very, um, let's just say, apprehensive about going into this particular Ranger setup and trying to turn around what is a Celtic uh, monopoly for you know so many years, seven years now in, in terms of Premier League titles, etc., and how he would be able to turn that round uh, with a budget that he would be given, but not just that, with a mentality at the club and with an administration at the club who clearly do not have the same wherewithal nor resources that Celtic have. And I go back to my initial point, there's only one place to be in Glasgow. There's only one, one position to be in Scotland, and that's first. And Rangers right now are miles away from first. To answer your question, um, the technique can be taught. And obviously, an elite footballer has the advantage in teaching that if he's aware of how he does the technique itself, which is some elite footballers don't understand the, the components involved in what they do. They play so off the cuff that it's not... They, they take, it's the, that Tony Adams situation. They, they know how to do it. They don't know how to explain how to do it. An example of a guy who's very good at explaining how to do it is Pep Guardiola. That's one of his greatest strengths as a coach is that he can take players on the training ground and say, this is how you receive a ball. This is how you position your body so you get the ball into the right place to have more passing angles once it's with you and to help your teammates. That's something he's very good at. But actually, I don't think there are many elite, elite footballers turning into coaches of that level these days. There's a real problem in that um, top footballers these days have the option to avoid being managers because they can make huge money out of punditry, as we you know, see guys like Gary Neville... <laughs> Thierry Henry, although he's an assistant coach at the moment and may, may take a manager's job, makes massive amount of money from just talking about football. And let's face it, it's a lot easier to talk about football than it is to manage a football team. I think also the manager's job has evolved. It's not just a case of you can walk into a dressing room and say, uh, look, I was a great footballer. I won this stuff. Listen to me. I'm picking the team. Uh, I'm going to shout at you and tell you what to do and inspire you, and uh, we'll see what happens in the field. You can't be a top manager anymore with that. You, you have to have such a 
a gamut of skills, um, principally tactical, uh, principally about organising um, your team to get the better of the opposition, be, being able to read opponents. The very top managers can change games within the game by reading the game and, and, and switching tactics during it. They've got to deal with a far more complex environment where all of their players, if you're at a top club, are already millionaires and have to be, have to be motivated to perform at a level that wasn't, you know, it wasn't relevant in the past. Most of them are superstars. Most of them have got everything they want in terms of material possessions, attention, um, lifestyle. So you're looking to extract performances for the sake of the performance, for the desire to win. Um, you've got to deal with media in a way you never had to before. Um, the clubs are owned primarily by businesses who are looking to make money from them. So they make decisions on the basis of results and performances and viewing figures and social media performance and criticism in the press. So it, it's a far more complex job, which therefore suits people who train to be managers, train to be coaches. And you've got this you know, cadre, for example, of Portuguese coaches, uh, many of whom were never footballers, um, who come from an academic school in Portugal where a guy uh, taught them a different way to, to train and prepare players, um, which was an academically thought through way and then implemented on the training field. And that group of coaches has had a lot of success across European football. And they're almost, all, most of them were never players. But because they've trained and prepared and, they, and they've got a system, systematic way which gives them an advantage in games, they are successful as coaches. It's hard for an elite footballer to catch up. Okay, someone like Frank Lampard would have been in an environment in where he's worked with a Jose Mourinho and seen his training technique on, on the pitch. And if he's paid attention and taken notes, he, he does have a, a, an experience of it. But he's still hasn't had, um, you know, he's not been sitting in, in an academy working on his training technique for years. So so to, to get those skills in place, he's kind of got to catch up after he's finished his playing career um, and then add them to the advantages he has of being a winner, being being a man who knows what top winning at top level football is. So it, it's, yeah, you can't, certainly you'd be crazy these days as the owner of a football club to go and say, Who's the biggest name um, available from the past generation of players who wants to be a manager? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab him because that's a surefire winner for me. Okay, guys, well, we've been talking about this for quite a while, so I'm going to move us on from a Liverpool legend to a legend in Liverpool, Mr. Duncan Castles. <laughs> <laughs> Just stick his name into Twitter search and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And this week he had... A fantastic story on the Daily Record website, one that really took off on social media. With regards to Zelko Buvac, the assistant manager of Liverpool, who has or hasn't or certainly left the club until the end of the season as it stands. Duncan, tell us a little bit more about that story and how it stands at the moment. I left the club full stop. Um, I know the, the Liverpool, uh, they didn't actually make a formal statement afterwards. They briefed the local reporters um, and part of that briefing was that he had, um, Zelko Buvac had left uh, until the end of the season for private reasons um, and remained an employee of the club but um, 
you know, as part of getting, when I got tiffed off by that story, obviously, obviously wanted to get in touch with uh, players at the club to find out um, if they knew about it in the background to it. And uh, what I was told was there was a meeting on Sunday at training in which the players were told that Buvac had left the club and would not be coming back. Um, and that tallied with the original information I'd got that Buvic had, had fallen out with Klopp um, and had um, decided to leave the club. It's extraordinary, really. Um, I don't, I can't think of another example of a club who are, um, what, three days away from arguably the biggest game uh, they've had in a decade. Um, Champions League semi-final where, you know, they go in with a three-goal advantage and are, you know, within touching distance of the Champions League final, um, where a assistant coach who has, uh, synonymous is probably the wrong word because he's not, um, not a famous name, but has been an integral part of uh, Jurgen Klopp's uh, managerial history for 17 years. And I think to the extent where you could describe him as a co-manager rather than an assistant manager. And you, you can go and look at um, people close to them talking about the way they work and even Klopp himself talking about how important Buvac is to his work. Um, you know, he's described as, as the brains of, of, a, of a coaching triumvirate that's been at Mainz, Dortmund and Liverpool. Um, to have that guy walk out of the club um, three days before Champions League semi-final is just, I, I can't think of another example of something like that. Maybe Ian can can uh, can recall one. I can't, to be fair, Duncan, and I, and I agree with you in terms of the significance of that particular event. Um, understanding is that Buvac and Klopp have quite a powerful history um, that they've worked together for obviously quite a long time, uh, mostly Borussia Dortmund. That this isn't the first instance where they've fallen out, or indeed that that uh, Buvac has left um, for a period of absence um, after a uh, an incident with Klopp. However, I would agree that um, the circumstances whereby we're halfway through a Champions League semi-final. And also in a Premier League campaign where Liverpool are looking to at least secure third place at the very worst, that this is a very serious, serious um, moment in the history of the club. Um, it's, I think, um, I would say, to do this, to actually have a fallout of this magnitude when you're on the brink of something and let's be fair here, Klopp takes all the the sort of uh, credit and the glory for Manchester, uh, for the, the, the win over Roma um, and the fact that they're on the verge of a first Champions League final since uh, 2007 etc but Buvac to my knowledge to how I spoken to people about him, etc, etc, is someone who, who is very influential in that coaching setup and someone who also um, would like to take a bit of credit for what happens on the field, never mind off the field. So 
that they've come to a point of no return in the middle of one leg and second leg against Roma tells or uh, says a lot certainly about um, this relationship coming to a point where they could no longer function together as a partnership, given even given how long they've been together. And I think that it, it can only have a negative effect on Liverpool's preparations for the, the game against Roma and Sadio Olimpico on Wednesday night. But also, um, <laughs> you've got to remember that with coaching partnerships, you, what you always have is... or what. <sighs> What you not naturally have is two different personalities who relate to players in different ways. And therefore, what you'll see is that some players will relate uh, directly to Klopp and they will all take uh, his praise or his, um, let's just say, positive uh, criticism in a certain way. Whereas the assistant manager's position is the one to back up both the head coach but also to speak to other players who maybe not be as significant or as high profile, but to just give them the G up and everything else. And Bivac is certainly one of those coaches who does that. So it's, um, it's, it's, it'd be difficult to underestimate how damaging this might be for Liverpool's season, which hinges on, obviously, the uh, second leg of the semi-final, but also the final itself, should they get there to, in Kiev. So... Uh, with regards to going forward, um, will Liverpool be stronger if Bivac returns or, or indeed departs for good? I would say that um, at the moment, I think we have to say that it would be negative if Bivac did not return because he's been central character in the development of uh, Liverpool under Klopp and also in some of the players who do not receive the same praise and, and the same... Um, profile that the likes of Mo Salah, Firmino, uh, Mane, etc. received because Bivac is one of those guys who operates under the radar and coaches people like Trent Alexander-Arnold or um, other players who are not quite as Andy Robertson, for instance, who are not quite as high profile, but gives them confidence in the fact that he effectively has the endorsement and mandate of the manager to do so um, and the fact again the timing here is of the essence and the fact it has been at such a, a, a very very significant moment in Liverpool's season just says everything about um, how this might affect the team and uh, the club's destiny if you like with regards to their Champions League campaign. What I'd like to add on that is that um, Bubac has been central tactical tactically to the, the, the clock Bovac um, axis that, that all three clubs have been at. He's the guy who designs the tactics and who gets the players, teaches the players how to do it on the pitch. He's also, I understand, the guy who reads games, so the guy who watches what's happening and advises on um, tactical switches during matches, all of which are very important skills. Um, what I will say, though, is that when I got this information, um, I took it to Liverpool source and um, they said that does not come. They didn't know at that point that the players um, had been told he was leaving, but they said it comes as no surprise to me because the pair have been at odds for some time now. Um, they're not speaking to each other at training. Bovac has been excluded from tactical meetings. 
uh, and he's not been involved in team selection. So there's been significant tension and problems between them for some time. So we can take that information and say, well, if there's been significant problems between them for some time, it hasn't affected their European campaign. So Klopp has managed to come up with a solution using other assistants um, to get him through those matches. Um, so that's clearly a plus for Liverpool, that they've got this far effectively without Buvac and gives you know Liverpool fans some hope that they can get all the way to the final and indeed win the final without Buvac. The, the rider on that, of course, will, would be that in both of the key difficult games they've played in the Champions League, and they've only really had two challenge, really challenging games, which is Manchester City and Roma, the opponents have played completely into Liverpool's hands tactically by setting up with a system that is exactly what you would want when you play um, pressing, get the ball forward, play into space for your quick forwards to score goals. I mean, the, the, the Roma game was diabolical from a tactical perspective once Roma had lost the, their, um, the early advantage they had of pressing high um, and, and controlling the ball, uh, which and they played very well for the first 20 minutes. As soon as Liverpool got hold of the ball and started playing balls in, in behind um, Roma's three centre-backs, two of whom were very slow, it, it just be, it was like handing goals over to most. I mean, Mo, I've not seen Mo Salah play in so much space all season. He, he had 15 yards of space. <laughs> the, uh, the the left wing back, usually 10 yards up the pitch behind him, not not in front of him, where he should be to defend, and, and only had to beat one player to get at goal or create a chance of goal. So, tactically, those games weren't complicated for Liverpool. Um, the final, you would expect, be it Bayern Munich or Real Madrid, will be a different proposal. Duncan, just to go back briefly to the the story itself, obviously, as I touched on in my introduction to this segment, there was a lot of consternation on on social media uh, with regards to uh, the story itself, a lot of sort of disbelief because you were the only one that was uh, that was on the story. Really, um, could you talk a little bit about being a modern journalist and facing up to that? Um, because, as I say, if you type in your name on on Twitter, there is an incredible amount of abuse. Um, having said that, you know there is at DV Origi, who is the, the sole Liverpool fan, uh, fan I could find that is backing you, who said Duncan Castle's right again. Oh, time to appreciate his egginess, which I thought was <laughs> shows that you still have fans in Liverpool, mate. Yeah, backhanded compliments of of, the, of them all. Um, look, actually, any journalist. Um, who operates in social media, uh, particularly in football, is going to get abuse. It's just um, it's just par for the course. You're dealing in a in a an area where it's about passion, and um, you know people have faith in their clubs and they want their clubs to do well. And they see they read something negative about their club, and um, and you know the the instinct of some is to shoot the messenger. They read something positive, and the instinct is to praise the messenger. Um, you know uh, that that's unavoidable. Um, I think what's more interesting is kind of the queries as to how someone who wasn't part of the Liverpool um, press pack would get that story. And this sort of there seems to be a belief amongst certain people that that is a story that 
Liverpool would leak to um, their local press guys. And, um, you know, initially until, until the story had been confirmed, there was a lot of scepticism that, you know, I just made the story up to cause problems for Liverpool and there's no way I could have got a story like that. I think that's actually quite naive in the sense that it's, um, that is something that Liverpool as a club, you would imagine would have wanted to keep as quiet as possible for as long as possible. So it really wouldn't have been in their interest to leak it to their own press pack. So therefore it's, it's something that is more likely to come out through a journalist like myself who's got a broad range of contacts. Um, and you know, that's what happened in this case. So one of my good contacts gave, gave me a tip off saying, um, really big story at Liverpool, uh, Buvac has walked today and the players have been told. And then I spent you know, six, seven hours standing that up with various sources uh, to make absolutely sure it was right and to make sure that the players knew about it and, and, and what had happened, what the background was to it. Ian, anything to, to touch on with that? Well, I think it's true that what Doug says is um, <clears throat> people don't quite appreciate and it's a shame, um, but social media has produced uh, an environment where everyone has an opinion and therefore um, everyone's opinion sometimes feels, well, to, certainly to the people themselves, to be true. And um, there's a lot of scepticism um, loaded against Duncan because of his very good contacts at Manchester United. Uh, um, a story about Liverpool's manager having a bust up with Klopp would be somehow um, disparaged or whatever which is nonsense because, as journalists, what we pride ourselves on is a, a range of people that we can rely on in terms of our information. And not only that, the contacts that we have are um, telling us the truth. And, of course, um, secondary to that, that we, we check the source of the story and we check the story two or three times over before actually um, deciding to go with it, uh, as it was in this case on the Daily Record and, and online. Uh, and, and so... Uh, it's a shame that people will automatically um, reject or, or denounce um, something which is an important story just because it's been Duncan, but at the same time we've seen that that's the case. Um, as I said before, what's important to me in, in all of this is that um, someone who is widely respected to be the most influential member of Jurgen Klopp's backroom staff has um has left the club when they are in a Champions League semi final against Roma, albeit five two up from the first leg, and he's not there. And um, we saw what happened to Manchester City when Pep Guardiola was sent to the stands uh, during their um, quarter final with Liverpool, and they lost that immediate access to their tactical genius. And we've seen it since um, in situations where the coach has been sent to the stands. So what happens if Klopp? loses his rag and, you know, maybe protest the decision. He doesn't have his trust number two to take over the tactical decisions and also to relay his um, tactical plans to the team at Sadio Olimpico on Wednesday night. So I think uh, it's an intriguing situation that we have um, to look forward to um, in terms of the Champions League semi-final second leg and one which Rivage um, would be very much involved in. But, you know, Liverpool are at a disadvantage. One which clearly has, has come 
you know, as part of, let's just say, them shaking themselves in the foot because it shouldn't be the case. Um, I don't know the circumstances of why it happened, but at the same time, I just don't uh, understand why um, they couldn't have made it up <laughs> between them, i.e. the two coaches, and said, for the good of the team, we should be prepared for what's coming at us at Roma on Wednesday night. But you know, time will tell whether or not that becomes a, a, a factor in, in whether or not Liverpool proceed to the final. Okay, well, I'll just get predictions quickly while we've got you on this subject. Duncan, what's your uh, score prediction? Uh, um, 2-1 Roma. Okay, don't put your money on that, given Duncan's racing record. Ian? Don't don't you put your money on my my one either, but I'd say (laughs) 1-1. 1-1. I'm going to go for 3-1 Roma. I think Liverpool will score first. I'll be be betting on that then, Johnny, given your recent record of uh, good decisions <laughs> yes best on here maybe but best not said about the whatsapp um <laughs> okay well we'll move on uh, swiftly to uh, arsenal and the news that is on the front page of the sun today on the back page should i say the sun today uh, regarding Rui faria um assistant manager at manchester united who has been linked to the north london club duncan what's your take on the story, and do you see it as something that has positive possibilities for both Arsenal and and the man himself? Yeah, this is a, a story by a friend of um, of and mine, a former colleague of ours, um, uh, Martin Lipton, and uh, and it's a great story. He's he's I checked it this morning, and he's on the money that um, Ray Faria is in his own Arsenal's very long list of potential candidates uh, to replace Arsene Wenger. Um, that list is uh, 14 names strong. Um, and the, the length of that list is indicative of the way Arsenal are going about this process in that it's almost like a corporate appointment in the sense that they've, they've decided on the attributes they want from a manager, which um, some of them were were vocalised by Ivan Gazidis when when he gave a press conference after um, Wenger's enforced departure, um, and it, they want they basically want someone who can play modern um, attacking football, uh, bring a modern element to the coaching that that was missing through Arsene Wenger, retain the club's uh, history or reputation for good football. Someone who'll be a club man, someone who'll be a good face for the club um, in press conferences in the way that Wenger generally was, uh, and someone who will value youth because they feel that they've got um, a, a, you know, a core of decent young players coming through at the moment, some of whom we saw in the, the game against Manchester United at the weekend, um, and, if, and they would like to see a, a path to the first team um, retained under the new manager. So they've got those 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 characteristics were pretty much Arsene Wenger with um, with the addition of modern coaching skills, modern tactical abilities. And they're looking around at the available individuals or potentially available individuals and trying to make contact with them and assess their interest and, and get a better handle. And, you know, Gazida said he thought it was more important to make the right appointment than a quick appointment. And Arsenal are definitely working in that way. Um, Faria is on that list um, and I think personally it is a very intelligent move 
by Arsenal to have him on the list. He's a guy who's under the radar. We have talked about him on the podcast, um, I don't know, several months ago we did a, a little section, but he has never managed in his own right, but he's been beside Jose Mourinho um, his entire uh, managerial career. So he's won two Champions Leagues, a plethora of titles. And he is, um, from what I, you know, having followed Mourinho's career very carefully and having reported on that managerial team for a long time, he's pretty similar to Mourinho in many ways, and certainly the key ways in terms of preparation techniques, tactical understanding and decision-making, um, being able to handle players. So he's got all the characteristics you would look for in um, a manager you would want to appoint to a, a club of, of Arsenal's dimension, except he hasn't actually managed as, as the lead manager before, which, which is against him and, and not having a, a high media profile is, is probably against him too. But what do, you know, what do Arsenal need? They need a guy to bring coherence to the club. And we talked about this last week. And, and I, I think they are being very clever in adding him to the list and, and um, presumably trying to find out if he'd be interested in, in leaving Mourinho, which is a big question because he has been incredibly loyal and stuck with um, Mourinho through that entire period to change clubs. And I know he has had offers from, for example, very big clubs in Portugal. It's an obvious thing uh, to happen in the past because they, you know, the Portuguese know how he did um, uh, as Mourinho's assistant at Porto. So he's a guy who, who's of appeal to their big clubs um, when jobs come open, but he's always turned them down in the past. The, the question would be whether he'd be ready to, um, to, uh, to take an opportunity if that was formally to be offered to him this time. It's a big gamble, I think, if that were the case. Um, I've got no doubt in um, Rui Faria's talent, both someone who has um, a grounding and a, a long-term um, interest in Jose Mourinho's coaching staff, someone who has developed techniques, uh, both as a fitness coach and in tactical analysis, which have helped Mourinho to achieve the, the success that he's done. Um the one thing that I'd be uh, slightly, let's just say, apprehensive about with regards to taking on a job like Arsenal is that we've seen um, coaches like Rui before, Andy Villas-Boas, who wasn't quite um, integral to Mourinho's um, system at Chelsea the first time round, but someone who was their chief scout and did a lot of work and, and promoted himself into a position where he was obviously Chelsea manager and um, Tottenham Hotspur manager, um, but effectively failed in both of those uh, roles. And so I'd be, again, sceptical about um, Faria taking on a, a job like Arsenal because it's such a huge, huge um, challenge, especially given that they do not have um, right now uh, a, a squad which can challenge for the Premier League. They don't either, it seems to anyway, have the finances where they can um, simply buy uh, players who will compete with Manchester City, Manchester City and Chelsea as well. Uh, you also have um, lesser examples like Paul Clement, who was um, Carl Ancelotti's assistant, clearly, um, when they won uh, a 
Champions League with Real Madrid and then uh, um, La Liga title with Paris Saint-Germain and also um, league titles with Chelsea as well. And he's obviously had a hard time integrating himself or, or trying to establish himself as a number one uh, at Derby County, Swansea City and now Reading. So I, I think there's going to be a degree of, um, let's just say, careful um, analysis with regards to Rui Faria's um, current status and how he might progress into being a number one coach. And as far as I am informed, the uh, the fact that Arsenal have met only in the last seven days with um, representatives of Max Allegri uh, from AC Milan, they still um, have uh, a lot of uh, contact with Luis Enrique and also with Carlo Ancelotti as well. It says to me that perhaps they are looking to be um, a little more conservative in this appointment than somewhere that you know, Rio Free would take them. Although I, I do definitely um, agree with Duncan's point that it would be a very interesting and um, and quite left-field appointment and something that you know, would appeal probably to Arsenal supporters and given the way that Wenger came in and the way he did uh, and achieved the success he did. But I think at this moment in time, Arsenal needs something a bit more, uh, let's just say, stable and uh, and with history, which says that they can compete at the highest level. Yeah, I, I think um, the um, the safe appointment is a uh, is to take a name, whether that name be a Carlo Ancelotti or Max Allegri, um, guys with history of succeeding at top clubs um, and the alternative kind of PR appointment is a, a Thierry Henry or a Patrick Vieira who have an immediate buy, who would have an immediate buy-in from the Arsenal support and have a lot of credit in the bank. In terms of competence, I think uh, they would, in Faria, they'd be taking someone who uh, has a, a skill set comparable to Mourinho and a, and a degree of experience which is almost comparable to Mourinho. So, in terms of what Arsenal need as a club, and that you know we've talked about this many times, that their squad is not in a great place. Um, the way they play football isn't in a great place. Um, they've lost a figure who was the organising central um, individual in the club. I think they need someone of that degree of competence, um, and there probably isn't anyone else in football who has that skill set available but you're right it would be a risky appointment because he's you know he's a guy who's associated with three with um chelsea and with manchester united so probably not uh popular with the arsenal supporters and uh not that profile of an ancelotti or allegri where you say well look at the look at the cv of titles he's won as a manager there's one there's one other one other factor there, though, um, which would presumably would be an, attract, an attraction to Arsenal, is um, they would be damage, inflicting damage on a, um, a direct opponent if they were able to persuade the guy to leave Manchester United because Mourinho, I know, would, um, would not want to lose three as assistant. And, you know, that, that has to be an attraction for any club um, if they can 
strengthen themselves and weaken a rival with um, with one move. Okay, guys, well, we're going to move on swiftly uh, so we don't overrun. And we're going to go to our legendary quickfire round. And this time it will be quickfire, won't it, guys? Yep, 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 yep. Good. I heard that. Um, and what we're going to be talking about this week is the Player of the Year awards, because it is Player of the Year season. But we're going to do our own transfer window alternative Player of the Year for guys that are outside the top six. I'm going to start with you, Duncan. Who's your number one pick outside the top six for Player of the Year in the Premier League? I would just say, since Mo Salah's got the writers, Football Writers Player of the Year, that I would have given it, as I said early in the season, I would have given that to Kevin De Bruyne. And I think Kevin De Bruyne can feel really hard done by that he's essentially lost a Player of the Year title because he doesn't score as many goals as, um, as Mo Salah. Salah's had an exceptional season, but the way Manchester City have won the title and De Bruyne's important to, us, to it, he has, for me, been the player of the season. Outside the top six... I would, um, I think I would go, one candidate would be Wilfred Zaha at Crystal Palace. Um, absolutely fundamental to their, um, the way in which they've got themselves out of relegation trouble. Um, you know, the central piece in their attacking system, he was injured for quite a while this season. I know Crystal Palace medical staff did a fantastic job in getting him back early. And uh, it wouldn't be surprising uh, surprising to me if there are some serious bids for um, Zaha in the coming transfer window, such as been his performances this season. Ian? Um, I'm not going to uh, uh, sort of uh, endanger Duncan's territory there by going back to the top four and including Kevin De Bruyne, although I do agree with what he said. Um, I think if we look further down the table, uh, I think Glenn Murray's goals at Brighton have um, effectively kept him in, let's just say, in contention to stay up because they're not safe yet. But I think he's not got the credit he deserves for the um, 12 privileged goals that he scored in a team which defends well and doesn't concede goals. So he's been someone who um, I think has been instrumental in us uh, at the, the debut season. And likewise, Aaron Moy at Huddersfield, who showed a lot of potential. Um, and in fact, um, it really did excel in the championship campaign, which saw Huddersfield promoted alongside Brighton and Newcastle. He has been someone for me who has adapted well, uh, assists wise, general play as well. I think that uh, if you ask anyone who's watched a lot of Huddersfield Towns um, games this season, they will say the same. And that Moy has been someone who's been very impressive, adapted well, given that it's his first season in the Premier League, and someone who's been very integral to um, that team's chances of survival. And, mm-hmm. a, and, a, and a real Henry McRae favourite, we should mention. Even though yeah, it's... we should do, yeah. He's given his Melbourne days. R.I.P. <laughs> R.I.P. indeed. R.I.P. <laughs> Him and the um, butterflies. Ah, oh dear, yes. Bring back the butterflies from Benahy. Um, you, you want another one? Yes. Uh, well, we've got to pick someone from the Burnley team, given that they're... Uh, they're looking like securing European football on um, on one of the smallest budgets in, d- in the division. I think the obvious candidate there is James Tarkovsky, the centre-back, who's um, got himself into the England squad this season. Um, it's a team that doesn't concede many goals at all, and he has been an important part of that. And uh, again, a player who, you know, being English... Um, 
will garner attention from more affluent clubs and Burnley may have a little bit of a battle to retain his services given um, the paucity of high-performing centre-backs in the Premier League at the moment. Okay, guys, I'm going to change the game up. I am looking for one name, one name from the top six that is an underappreciated player of the year, potential player. I'm going to start with you, Ian. Okay. Um, Andrew Robertson at Liverpool, who I think um, has been nurtured into the Liverpool team correctly by Jurgen Klopp, but who has solved a ageing, ageing problem at that at Anfield with regards to left-back. Alberto Moreno was never, never good enough. Um, too many mistakes. Robertson's absolutely transformed that position for Liverpool in terms of the way that he both attacks and defends. Um, and in a way, uh, as a Scotsman and as a fan of the Scotland team, we're very lucky to both have him and Kieran Tierney um, in, the, uh, in the mix for the next uh, qualifying campaign for European Championships. Duncan? I think, um, you know, in a, in a month in which, or close to being in a month in which Andres Iniesta has announced his uh, retirement from Barcelona, and, um, you know, it's very clear that Iniesta is probably the player in European football who met most merits to have won uh, a Ballon d'Or um, for the, the quality of his, his career in European football, but it's never got one because of the you know shining lights of Messi and Ronaldo. I think the, the equivalent in in the Premier League would be David Silva, um, who's been consistently good um, as a, a and effective and talented um, and a similar kind of player to Iniesta, parallels with Iniesta during his time at Manchester City, but will probably never win a Player of the Year trophy in England. Um, so that would be my one as the under the radar, and particularly in a season in which he's played essentially as a number eight central midfielder with... Um, you know, with his body shape and as a lightweight, um, not an obvious choice of tackler and to contribute the way he's done, been uh, sensationally good. Can I give you a couple of names from Man City that I think are underappreciated? The first one would be Fabian Delph because <laughs> he's had to cover a position where uh, Guardiola went out and bought a very expensive top quality left back in Mendy. And he's come in, not a, not, not a, not a left back. And I think performed pretty well in that position throughout the season. It's not a player that's going to grab headlines, but he's shown a great deal of tactical intelligence in the way he's gone about his business. Well, Johnny, I would say the words not a left-back are the are the key ones there. Um, the guy is not a great defender. He's made a lot of errors during the season. He has done, he has filled in, he's done the job, but I think it's telling that uh, Guardiola has shifted him out of some of his lineups when he's had the, the opportunity to um, later in the season. So I'd, I'd have to disagree with you on that one. Okay, that's. That, I, I would. That's I would. I, I'd join in by saying that, um, in my heyday, I was a striker, Johnny, and um, I played left back once for the Scottish national press team uh, against England, and uh, I'd uh, Mark Bright in my pocket, um, who was then currently a, a professional at Crystal Palace, and uh, so therefore playing left back is not exactly the best um, measure of a player because even I could do it. Okay, my second one is going to be, I think, more popular than that one because I, I might just edit that out. That's been so badly received. <laughs> keep it in, keep it in. My, my second one is Fernandinho, who I think has been essential to the way Man City have played and has really kept them ticking over in terms of the way yeah. they keep hold of the ball. I, 
I, I think that's a very good shout, Johnny. I think he's a he's an excellent footballer. Um, and yes, essential is a good way of describing um, what he is because he has a very big job to do tactically um, and defensively for that team and, and he's done it superbly well this season. Okay, that's good. Uh, I got at least a little bit of um, sugar in with the salt there, so uh, that's a nice change. <laughs> uh, that's all from us. We'll be back next week uh, on Tuesday before 3pm to continue the debate. Uh, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. And more importantly, the guys are at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SJ. To get the pod as soon as it becomes available, please subscribe on Acast or iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening.